The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 1. We started a series a couple of weeks ago. We're calling it the beginning. You can see behind me. And we are journeying through the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to chapter 11. This is going to take us all the way into the summer. Uh, We are today just going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. This is week 3 in the series. Now the first two weeks, we've covered two verses, been going at a pretty slow pace today. We're going to kick it up a notch. We're going to cover 21 verses today. Um, So we're going from 0 to 60 in one week. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 3, and I just want to read the totality of the text, and we'll come back to it throughout the sermon, so I'd encourage you to keep your thumb in in the Bible or keep it open on your phone, however you're choosing to read this morning. Genesis 1. Verse 3 through verse 23. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, each according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God, would you bless our ears Soften our hearts, open our eyes to hear and receive your word today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us this privilege of of opening up this book, and these are your living words to us. God, may we hear your voice as we study these words today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, light changes everything. 
If you've ever been in total darkness, you know how life-saving and joy-giving light can be. I've been in many situations over the years where I've been in, in, in really dark darkness. Last summer, my son and I and my brother-in-law, Russ, we were backpacking in the Bitterroot Sally Wilderness area in western Montana. We had planned a, a mega trip. We kind of have this, this tendency as, a, as guys to every year try to do something a little more difficult just to see how close to death we can actually get. And, and last year, we got really close to death. And we were doing this trip, and we were doing most of it off-trail. We had these packs on. And if that wasn't hard enough, we decided to wear tennis shoes. So dumb. And we're climbing over this no-name pass, and we're exhausted. We're fighting through buck brace. Hour turned into hour turned into hour. Next thing I know, we, I'm at the end of myself. The sun has set. The, the mountains are growing dark, and we are a long way from where we needed to get. And I'm, and I'm tired. Uh, I'm a little afraid. I want to punch my son because he's jumping from rock to rock like we haven't done anything that day. And he's like full of energy. And, I, and I'm barely able to make it one more step. And then it's getting darker and it's getting darker. And we're still a long ways from where we need to go. And pretty soon it's pitch black. And I had taken my, my headlamp and I didn't plan on hiking in the dark. So it was at the bottom of my bag. So I'd kind of been putting off getting my headlamp because I just didn't want to stop because I was trying to get where I needed to get. But we're on the side of this mountain and it's brutal. And we find this little stream. We drop our packs. It's pitch black. We take out our headlamps. We fill up our water. But you know, as I'm sitting there before I turn on my headlamp, it was, it was terrifying. I didn't know if there was going to be a place for us to sleep. I didn't know it was lurking in the dark. I didn't know how dangerous it was. I didn't know if I slipped, how bad it would be. And I was afraid. But you know what? When we put on that headlamp and we clicked it on, it was different. We could see the water. We could see the stream. We could see where we were at. And, and though we were on the side of this mountain, there were these little outcroppings that kind of dropped out. And we found this little chute. And we climbed up this little chute under pitch black, but with our headlamps. And we got on this, on this little flat spot, and we knew we could sleep. It illuminated the way. And when we got out there, I was so glad to be there. I wasn't afraid anymore. It led me to where I needed to be. And there was a skeleton of a dead mountain goat. And I'm like, if mountain goats die on this path, what in the world are we doing out here? But we laid down. We got a, we got a good night's rest. And I learned an important lesson that the, the, the darker the dark, the brighter the light. The darker the dark, the brighter the light. The darker it got, the more I wanted light. And when we turned that light on, it was so life-giving. I think about the light of the gospel that shines into your life and into my life. Perhaps there was a season in your life, maybe the time when you came to faith in Christ, it was a season in your life where you were in the midst of one of life's darkest dark seasons. I know many whose story goes there. And, and the darker life gets, the more bleak life situations get, all the sweeter and all the brighter the light of the gospel shines. Perhaps that's your story. In the midst of utter lostness, the bright light of God's grace flooded your world. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever stop telling that story to yourself and others. Perhaps as a believer you have experienced seasons of darkness. I know I have where the, 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 the light of the gospel shone brightly in one of life's valleys, one of those dry seasons, those dark moments in your spiritual life, when you were reminded at a key moment in life, the brightness of the gospel reminded you that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that God is with you, that you're not alone, that he has overcome death, he's overcome sin. You have hope in him. When the light of God's truth meets us in the valley, it reminds us of those things that we know to be true. The darker the dark, the brighter the light. The first words of our text today, God says, let there be light. And there was light. 
Those words come right after verse 2. Do you remember what Moses writes in verse 2? We see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. So it was a dark, desolate, destitute, disordered lump of matter. But then last week, if you remember, there was this hopeful thing at the end of verse 2, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It's dark, but God's there. You got the sense he was going to do something. And in the day in verse 3, we hear these words, let there be light. And there was light. And Moses shares for us in our text the exact moment when the creation of the heavens and the earth begins and the bright light of God's word pierces the black darkness of nothing. In our text today, we, we get to see God's creative hand being put to the work of creating the beautiful things we see around us. Though the darkness had yet pierced the light in last week's text, we had this hope that it was going to. And in our text today, we see it. It's realized. The light pierces the darkness, and we see the beginnings of order and life as light spreads across the one dark, once dark landscape. And then as the days unfold, God inspires Moses to write. And we'll see that as God speaks, creation happens. God speaks the glories of the creation into existence like a master painter. Brushing in life. Where there was once formless void, there is form and there is life and there is light. This lifeless mass forever disappears. Into a living planet we see over the pages of the days of creation, the oceans start to teem with life. Mountains spring up. Seas go under their place. My wife and I this weekend, we went to, to Oregon coast. It's the first time I've been to the southern Oregon coast. And I was standing there in Brookings and I was looking out at those beautiful rocks and I was watching how the mountains drop down into the ocean. And I was reminded of what I read in Genesis and how, how God decided where the oceans would be and he decided where the land would be and he caused the, the mountains to rise. It's all part of this beautiful creation. I love the creation account. I love to just imagine what the supernatural hand of God looked like as he, was, as he was orchestrating all of creation into existence. I remember the book, The, the Magician's Nephew, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan is kind of just singing creation into be. I remember reading that and just imagining what it was like for God to, just to sing or to paint or to speak creation into existence. But you know what? As I, as I walk with, with God, there, there, there was so much in my my past that I was so sure of. I was 100% certain at one point in my walk with the Lord that I knew exactly from a scientific perspective how God created all of it. I would have argued to the death on how God created all of it. Pastor Jeremy popped into my office this week and we were just talking and we both were commenting on how the older we've gotten, the less sure we are about things. There was a time in my life I was fist-pounding sure of the science behind the creation account. I knew without a doubt I would have argued anybody. But you know what? I've learned over the years, there's just some things that, uh, that we're just never going to know for sure until we stand in the presence of Jesus. Now, there are things in the Christian life that we have to be unwavering about. The truth of the gospel, the core doctrines of the Christian faith, the exclusivity of the cross. These are things that we have to be unwavering about. 
But there's also areas in the Christian life where there are well-meaning, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching Christians who have disagreement. These non-essential issues, or as the oft-quoted phrase often goes, the, the, in the essentials we must have unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. There are many views and there are many perspectives on the verses we just read. And there's liberty within Orthodox Christianity. There's room for agreement and disagreement and dialogue and heated dialogue. Within Christendom, there are several interpretations of the days of Genesis. In fact, Pastor Sam from Philippi, he and I, and and perhaps some other folks from around here, we are going to do a vlog. Uh, in, in December, it'll probably be available at the end of December, beginning of January for those of us here. And we want to get into this vlog, some of the particulars and the specifics of the sciences behind creation and some of the different views so we can kind of ham it up and, and fight a little bit, but, but shake hands and hug when all is said and done. But today, as I look at the text, I want to say, I just want to give a couple brief overviews or what are some of the ways, some of the lenses Christians can wear as they approach the creation texts. And maybe you've heard of these, maybe you haven't. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to take notes. Here's our some of the views that Christians hold when it comes to the science behind the days of creation. One, we, we, there's a view that many in the church hold 24-hour days. They believe in, in the, 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 the days described in Genesis 1 are, 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 are six and seven literal 24-hour days of creation. It's a widely accepted view within the church. There's the day-age perspective. The days of Genesis are chronological descriptions of eras or eons. The word day is is speaking of larger swaths of time, long periods of time in the days of creation. There's progressive creation where where people hold to the view that that the six days of creation are are six literal 24-hour days, but there's large swaths of time between the days of creation. There's the literary framework that a lot of people bring to the text where rather than, than read the text literally, they read it literarily from a literary perspective in which the days of creation don't describe, uh, describe a linear sequence of 24-hour days, but rather they're a structured outline of God's creative activity where the days conceptually parallel one another in a poem or a song. There's the idea of revelatory days. The, the days of creation are the days that, that God revealed to Moses, the author, how he created things. There's the view of the religious polemic, which is where Genesis is written as like a refutation of the, the, the main worldviews of creation that existed in those eras, in that time. I read this week that the creation described in Genesis 1 reflects an ancient pre-scientific cosmology, not science, according to this view. The actual purpose of the account is to assert which deity deserves credit for creation while denigrating the claims of rival deities associated with cosmology and its descriptive elements. And so well-meaning Christians can come to this text, have heated debate, but walk away loving one another as they grapple with how to interpret the days of creation. Many, many Jesus-loving, biblically literate, gospel-proclaiming Christians hold different views on the days of creation. And as I read the, the, the Genesis account, the creation account, I read the name of God 35 times, or, or the name Elohim, which is... is, is, is referencing God 35 times in the first 35 verses of the Genesis account. I read the word for creation or create uh, six times in the same swath of text. Three of those times occurs on the 27th verse when it's speaking of the creation of man. And so the text seems to have a heavier emphasis towards the God of creation and less on the particulars of creation. If you and I approach the Bible as 
as a science manual, we might end up disappointed at some point. The Bible is, is not intended to be a science textbook, but it's to reveal the nature and the character of God. If you and I look at the Bible as the story of God, we will drink deeply from that well all of our lives, and it will not disappoint. And even though well-meaning Christians can disagree on non-essentials, there are essentials when it comes to this discussion. There is an essential upon which there must be absolute agreement among all Christians. All Christians must agree on the simple truth that God and God alone is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We have to agree on this. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans Romans chapter 1, Woe be to those who reject this idea of God as creator, who deny God, uh, who, who suppress the truth. The Apostle Paul says that those who do that will face the wrath of God. If you look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, here's what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that you're without, if you walk outside, if you look at the mountain range, if you look at a leaf, if you look at a child, if you see a mother loving their child, if you look at the ocean, if you look at the created world, and you harden your heart so much that you say that is not the result of a divine creator, you are suppressing the truth. You're willfully being ignorant. You're turning your back on what has been clearly revealed in creation. We have to come to this agreement that God is the creator of all things. Paul goes on to say, Beginning in verse 21. For although they, they, those who suppress the truth, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The irony in this text is that those who suppress the truth of creator God, those who suppress the truth of an immortal creator will then turn and worship mortal creation as they suppress the truth of this creator. How foolish to deny immortal creator and elevate mortal created things as if they were God. So that sets us up. Now I want us to settle into the creation account and walk through it rather quickly. There's some things I would encourage you to write down along the way. Let's look back at verse 3. As we pick up, after the Darkness was over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the deep, picking up in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. This is the first day of creation. And here on the first day of creation, we see a pattern that is repeated in all the other days of creation with one exception. Here's the pattern. Write it down if you want to write it down. The creation pattern is this. God said, God did, and God saw. Here's the pattern we see in all the days of creation with one exception. God said, God did, and God saw. The phrase God said appears ten times in the creation account. From my count, it's the most repeated phrase in all of the creation account. God said. It precedes everything. Every single day begins with the words God said. Take, for example, day one. God said, let there be light. The blacker the darkness, the brighter the light, 
The light of creation pierced the darkness of the unformed world. God said, I've called my sermon today, God said, because that phrase appears so much. This is about God speaking creation into existence. When God speaks, creation happens. The word of God does the work of God. What God What does God's word do? Well, we see in the second thing, God did, it separated the light from the darkness. God said, God did separate the light from the darkness. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. And it's interesting that God is naming these things. And we see in the next, uh, the first three days of creation, that God names day and night, that he names the heavens, or other translations call it sky. And God in the day three calls the dry land earth. And when someone names something, it's the sign of sort of like dominance. It's the sign of uh, dominion. When my child was born at the hospital, no one else named my child. I was the father, my wife was the mother, and I alone had the right to name it. It's It's a sign of dominion. And so God is naming the things he creates, which is very interesting because in day six, remember God gives Adam the right to name the animals, sort of passing on to him and trusting dominion over the earth to Adam. So God said, God did, and God saw. What did God see? Well, he saw that the light was good. God said, let there be light. God did separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that the light was good. And God started all of this by saying this phrase, let there be light. That's an interesting thing, too. We don't normally make a command with the word let as the first word we speak. Sometimes when we hear that sort of phrase, it's like, hey, let me have a cookie, or or, let me out of the car seat. But as we understand this language here, this isn't a passive thing that God is saying. He is speaking creation into existence. A a, a better rendering of it might be for God to say, light exists. And that's what God is doing. And his first action in all of creation is to speak light into the world. And it's not going to be till day four that we see the sun show up on the scene. It's not till day four that the sun is mentioned. And so it's interesting because if you look at the first pages of Scripture, there's no mention of the sun and yet there's light. If you look at the final pages of Scripture in Revelation, there's no sun and yet there's light. In other words, light both precedes and also outlasts the sun according to Scripture. Interesting. Throughout the Scriptures... We read of light being life-giving and truth-giving and joy-giving and pure. Here we see on day one, God said, let there be light, and he did it, and it was good. Day two. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. We see the same We see the same pattern, with one exception. God said, God did, but we do not see what God saw. This is the only day this occurs in. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So as day two begins, uh, light is shining on, on the glistening deep of this kind of unworked, unordered earth, and then God speaks again, and his words bring order to the deep. His task is to create the sky on day two. And that's what he did. God said, God did. He he, he made an expanse that separated the waters from the waters. He called the expanse, the heavens, other translations calls it the sky, and it was so. So God created this space between the oceans and the clouds. He called it heaven. 
Remember, to name something is an exercise in, in, in dominion. So God is just revealing his dominion here. And that's interesting, because listen to what I read this week about God naming the heavens. Here's what one scholar says. Here the naming of the heavens as distinct from the sea dismisses the pagan gods of sky and sea without a word. And you'll see this in the creation account, which is what I love. God doesn't go at the false gods. The text doesn't start attacking the pagan gods of the Egyptians or the polytheist beliefs of the, of the Near Eastern cultures. It doesn't go after the pantheist Mediterranean religions. God's approach is to simply be God. He doesn't get involved in these little quibbling conversations with these demigods who don't even deserve a breath. He just says, I am God. And by elevating the one true God, all those false demigods just fade into oblivion. We see it over and over in this account. By naming his creation, God is exercising sovereign dominion. He, he, he said he did, but he did not see that it was good. The only day in creation where God does not say it was good is on day number two. And I've looked at this from all these different angles. I've done so much research, some intensive research, and I'm pretty sure I understand why God didn't say it was good on day two. If you look at the Jewish calendar, the Jewish calendar begins on Sunday. Their, 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 their Sabbath is Saturday. So the first day of the week is Sunday. So this is day two, so it would have been Monday. And can you see where I'm going with this? Even God hates Mondays. It's my one joke. Come on, guys. God had a case of the Mondays. That's not true. But there is some reasons that some scholars have speculated as to why God did not say it was good on day two. Listen to what I read this week. The reason God didn't say that his work on day two was good is that on that day nothing was created or made that was in fact good or beneficial for humanity. The heavens were made and the waters were divided, but the land where the human beings were to dwell still remained hidden under the deep. The land was still formless and not yet a place where a human being could dwell. So it wasn't good. On day two, God said, let there be sky, let the waters be separated, and he did it, and it was good. Day three, can you see the handiwork of God in just two days? Can you see the earth that was once formless and void and dark and dead, disordered and desolate, now with just a few flicks of his wrist, a few strokes of the paintbrush, God is creating something out of nothing. We can see the earth being warmed by this piercing light. We can see blue sky stretching into the horizon, big clouds floating in the sky as the, as the light glistens off the sea. And now day three begins, and God speaks, and this time he speaks twice. His first words complete the, the forming of the earth beginning in verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And still in day three, a second time, his words begin to, to fill that which he has so masterfully formed up to this point, beginning in verse 11. God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, God did, and God saw. 
God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry land appear. God said, let vegetation sprout up on this land. And by speaking the earth up from the seas, and by speaking vegetation across the face of the earth, God is communicating something powerful about the false gods of Moses' day. As one scholar notes here, the gods of earth and vegetation, the gods of fertility are powerfully dismissed. There is no sea god, only the seas that God controls, as he likewise controls the earth and its harvest. So God said, and God did. We read twice, it was so. It was so in both accounts. It was so. God did the very thing he said he was going to do. God created land to, to protrude up out of the sea, and God caused vegetation to grow across the sea. Again, this weekend, I'm walking up and down the coastline of Oregon, and I'm looking at the trees as they cascade off the mountains, and I'm looking at the moss and the, and the, and the ferns as they grow all the way down into the ocean on these giant, beautiful rocks. I'm just imagining God speaking this into existence. And God saw that it was good. We have it twice. God saw that it was good in verse 10. He saw that it was good in verse 12. The land was good. The sea was good. The plant life was good. And the first half of creation is complete. God has formed the earth. He, he's put light on the face of the earth. He's separated night and day. He's, he's put a sky above the expanse. He's created land and plants. And now on day four, we see God beginning to fill the very thing that he formed. And there's order to this. He forms for the first three days and he fills for the next three days. I was thinking about this and I was reminded of a date I went on with my youngest daughter many years ago. We were living in Milwaukee and we went on this little date and I heard of this place that did, you know, come, they teach you how to paint. And I have no idea how to paint. But when we got there, I thought we were just going to paint some owls. But the first thing they gave us was just a blank, I think I have a picture of it, uh, a blank uh, uh, canvas. So there's my daughter. She's like six. She's really embarrassed back there. That's Alex back there in the yellow coat if you want to disembarrass her. That's fine. Uh, there's Alex. She's like 10 maybe. So they gave us that. So that's what we started with, a blank slate. And then they said, okay, we don't just start painting owls. We had to mix white and blue and we had to create like a, a whole background. So that's the next picture. And then we had to take some brown paint and we had to create these little sticks that went across the canvas. Before we could fill the painting with the owls, we had to do all this forming work, form the sky, form the vegetation. And then ultimately, we painted some owls. I'm not going to tell you which one is Alex's and which one is mine, but we painted some owls and we filled the paintings with life. This is the sequence we see in, in the creation account. God formed the earth and made it inhabitable. And then he began to fill it with life. And so that's what we see in the first three days, now heading into the fourth. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, beginning in verse 14. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens and he gave light on the earth to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate all the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. We see the same pattern. God said, God saw, God did. What did God say? He says, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens. And there were heavenlies. Think of all of the majesty just contained in these few verses. God spoke and there was moon. 
He spoke and there was sun that burns at something like 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. He spoke and there was our solar system. Pluto included, whether or not it's a planet, it doesn't matter. He spoke our solar system into being. God spoke the Milky Way galaxy into being. And there are a hundred billion other galaxies outside of our galaxy. And even within our galaxy, there's a hundred thousand million stars. In all of the cosmos, all of the universe, God spoke, and it's contained in one sentence, 70 billion trillion observable stars in addition to our sun. God spoke them into being. All of it created by God. And it was so. This is what God did. He made the two great lights. He made the stars. God set them in the expanse of heavens. And just like that, the moon and the sun and the stars and the entire universe was put in its place. And as we look back at what Moses is doing here, he, he is setting the God of creation far above the false gods that would have existed in his time. He, he's not attacking the other gods. He's just elevating creator God. By simply elevating the truth of the creator, listen to what one preacher said. Notice that the sun and moon are identified as two great lights. Moses consciously avoids using their names because they are gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Moses is saying that the sun, moon, and stars are not gods, but God's creations. He asserts Israel's majestic monotheism over the degraded pagan polytheism of his day. So God said, God did, and God saw that it was good. The moon and the sun and the stars and the galaxies are good. God said that there be sun, moon, and stars, and he did it, and it was good. Finally, day five, beginning in verse 20. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, God did, God saw. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly across the expanse of the heavens. After making this distinction between the seas and the sky on day two, God now fills them with the things he forms, living creatures, fish and whales, birds of all kinds. That's what God said. Then God created it and he blessed it. This is the first time we see the word create since verse one. The next time we see it mentioned is when human beings are talked about on day six. And God blessed these living creatures. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. It's the first mention of the word blessed in our text. So God said, God did, and God saw that it was good. The earth is formed and mostly filled and set up for day six. And day six is a big day. It's on day six where God forms mankind. God said, let the seas and the air teem with life. And he did it, and it was good. And day one through five is this crescendoing, it's this building up as God has yet to create his crown jewel, uh, humankind in his own image. The image bearers of God have not yet come on the scene. That's reserved for day six. But everything that we see leading up to day six is God preparing planet earth for humans, for us, for those who, those who bear his image, for those who he loves. He makes the earth into a place that has been supernaturally formed and filled to be prepared for human habitation. And as day six awaits, you get the anticipation for the crown jewel. The, 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 the pinnacle of creation is going to come on the scene. The only one in all of God's creation who will bear his image. 
the first three days of creation, we see God remedying what we read in verse 2. The earth was formless. The first three days of creation, God adds form to the formlessness. But also in verse 2, it says the earth was void. The next three days, we see God filling the void with life and with heavenly bodies. There's this formed and filled motif in the creation account. I have some on the... If you want to take pictures of the formed and filled, we see on day one, two, and three, God formed lights, created and separated the darkness. Sky is created and separated from water. Land is created and separated from water. Vegetation is created. That's all formed. And then days four, five, and six, we see that it's filled. The space that God filled in day one is sun, moon, stars fill the sky. Living creatures fill the sky and waters, and living creatures fill the land, and mankind is created. If you want to take it to like another way to look at it, you can just see how the days are paired. You see day one and day four can be paired. You see day two and day five can be paired. And day three and day six can be paired. If you have a phone and want to take a picture of that, I'll leave it up there. Take a picture. It's interesting how the text lays itself out. But now listen. So here we are, and then you have the big question. Okay, Paul, great. It's really interesting. I love how how God inspired Genesis chapter 1 to be written. I appreciate the days of creation. I appreciate all that. What does that mean for us? We're sitting in a gymnasium in the year 2020 in Medford, Oregon. What does it mean for us today? Well, just think about it for a second. Creation begins with God speaking light into being. God said, let there be light. The very first words of God recorded in Scripture are God speaking light into existence. Light. In verse 3, we see dawn, uh, the light dawning across an untainted land. And the Bible begins with this image of, of an untainted world being filled with light. No sun. God himself is a source of light. And then in just a few chapters, it all gets tore apart. Chapter 3, we're going to read as sin tears the untainted world apart. We're going to see as Adam and Eve's act of rebellion introduces sin and pain and death and a wedge between God and man takes place. And the rest of Scripture is working out the pain that was resulting from that original sin. But by the very end of the Bible, we see the same image of an untainted world. This time it's the restored world that's filled with light. No sun, but God is the light. We see the overarching story of God redeeming the world back to the way he desired for it to be. Jesus, the Redeemer, being the light. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, called himself the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the light of the world, being fully God, was present at creation. When Jesus first pierced the darkness on day one, or when light, rather, pierced the darkness on day one, Jesus, the light of the world, was there. But he wasn't just present. He, wasn't, he, was, he was speaking things into being. The Gospel of John makes this pretty clear. If you look at the first couple of verses in the Gospel of John, it begins with John saying, In the beginning was the Word. This is a clear parallel of the first words of Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then in John's Gospel, John, writing of Jesus, Jesus is the Word. He identifies Jesus as the Word in verse 14. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus was God at the beginning. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Did you hear that? It creation... All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him, not anything was made that was made. 
In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul affirms this in Colossians. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in in Jesus, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is speaking of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's amazing. Here's what that means. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, Functioning within the triune Godhead spoke light into existence. And he called it good. And he did this at creation. Sovereign God spoke light into existence knowing that one day he would be hanging on a cross as the world would turn black. And he was able to call it good because the blacker the darkness, the blighter the light. Jesus, the light of the world, spoke mountains up from the waters. And he called it good. Knowing that one dark day he would be forced to carry his cross up a mountain called Golgotha to his death. But the blacker the darkness, the brighter the light. Jesus, the light of the world, spoke plants and trees into existence and he called it good. Knowing that one dark day, the very tree he spoke into being at creation would be cut and fashioned into the shape of a cross upon which he himself would be nailed. The blacker the darkness, the brighter the light. Jesus, the light of the world, spoke humankind into existence, bearing his very image. And he called it very good. Knowing the darkness of Adam's rebellion, knowing the dark day when they would turn their back on God and partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and knowing that the ancestors of Adam would nail him to a cross, knowing the wrath of God for Adam's sin would be poured out on him, As he died for all humankind, he still said it was very good. The blacker the darkness, the brighter the light. As dark as things would get in salvation history, as dark as things would get in your history and my history, the sin-defeating, death-conquering, kingdom-establishing, salvation-earning, life-giving work of Christ shines brightly, no matter the circumstance. The darker the darkness, the brighter the light of the gospel. The reason God could call all of creation good is because darkness isn't dark to God. He knew from the very beginning as he was looking at the garden and he was seeing the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden as he was looking through the garden of Gethsemane where the obedience of Christ would overcome the the disobedience of Adam in the garden of Eden. He was looking through all that to a garden city, a new heavens and a new earth where one day there will be no more tears or sorrow or crying or suffering or pain, where God will make all things new and he will dwell with his people for eternity in perpetual light, even as black as the darkness has appeared throughout history. From the fall to the flood, from the crucifixion to the crusades, from the dark ages to D-Day, it's good because the bright light of the gospel is our hope. God is good and we can trust him no matter how dark those days get. And if you're in a dark day today, the light of the gospel shines brightly because the darker the dark, the brighter the light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us as your church to gather today. God, in homes, in gymnasiums, in music suites, in hallways, in commons, and in 
buildings around the area. God, thank you that you allow us to gather. And God, I thank you that we can open up your word. And we can look at this creation account. And God, we can know that your fingerprints are all over the place. They're all around us. God, you are at work in our midst, and you have been at work since the beginning of time. And God, the things that you have done are good. God, remind us today that the, the darker the darkness, the brighter the light. God, may, the, may, may our eyes be lifted up today. God, guard us against looking at the things around us that would distract us from fixing our eyes on you, God. Lift our chin, lift our eyes to fix them on you, the giver of life, our hope, our salvation. God, we love you. We ask you to have your way with us as we worship you in this place today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.